This is the last Sunday of the liturgical year uh, before the year resets every year at the start of Advent. It's known as the Feast of Christ the King Sunday. And we have spent a whole lot of time this year talking about what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But I think honestly, uh, the idea of a kingdom and a king for most of us is a little bit fuzzy at best. Um, In fact, one of the reasons that we hold elections every couple of years is to remind our elected leaders that they serve us, that they are not here to build their own kingdoms. In my lifetime, there have been seven presidents and an eighth on the way. And so my idea of what an eternal kingdom looks like uh, runs a little bit thin. And I would love to tell you that like, it has come from like, all these ideas of you know, these virtues like wisdom and bravery and courage and justice that are like, you know, born out in these great works of world literature. But if I'm honest, I think um, there is one work that has shaped my imagination more than any of the others, and it is Disney's Robin Hood. Kids, you know the one? Robin Hood and Little John. Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest, laughing back and forth at what the other one has to say. Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time. Oodle lolly, oodle lolly. Golly, what it, yes, thank you, well done. Carrie's like, I don't think I'm ever gonna have that guy sing in, uh, in worship ever. Yeah, it was the story of this guy. Cowardly Prince John, that maneless, quivering thumb sucker, the very, like, picture of tyrannical greed. And it was contrasted with, uh, you know, there, there, there were these, these, these people, the sweet, sweet rabbits, and they waited in, in patience, in longing for the return of King Richard the Lion, the, the good, the just, with his long, flowing, and majestic mane. Now, and the impression that this movie set on my, my little eight-year-old self was very clear. Uh, Richard is what we long for in a leader. John is often what we get but we don't have this, this history in America. We are heirs of democracy, and so we kind of get this idea that we can be our own kings. We want to be in charge. We, we say that things like our home is our castle. Uh, America is the land of rugged individualism. It's just part of our Western ethos. According to Daniel Pink, the New York Times bestselling author of the book Drive, the thing that motivates us most is autonomy. He writes this, the secret to high performance and satisfaction, whether at work, at school, or at home, is the deeply human need to direct our own lives. We want to be the captain of our souls. We want to be in charge. We want to be king. But the problem is the job is taken. Having just spent the last 15 weeks looking at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus opens up this window to what life in the kingdom looks like. And so we are worshiping here together this morning because we acknowledge that Jesus is not just a good rabbi. He's not just a good teacher. He is our Lord. He is our King. We baptize because we want 
lost them to know because we want every child to know that they are children of the king, that they are citizens of that kingdom. And we, we do this as a, as a community because if we are gonna honor Jesus as king, we need to be part of a people who will take on the practices and actions that would allow us to live in the kingdom fully here, even while we take up resident aliens in our own culture. We end up spending a whole lot of our lives poised between these two kingdoms, between the kingdoms that come in power in our world and the kingdom that came in fullness in Jesus. And the question is, what happens when those two kingdoms collide? Where does your heart get pulled when those kingdoms run into each other? And so for this morning, we're going to turn to John chapter 18, verses 33 through 40. And we're going to pick up the story where Jesus has been arrested and tried by the religious leaders. And now he is turned over to Pilate, who represents the kings of this world. Listen carefully, for you are listening to God's word. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born into and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Almighty God, send your spirit upon us, the same spirit that caused these words to be written, now cause them to be heard. And hearing, may we be moved to joyful obedience. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, Jesus or Barabbas, you would think that that would be a pretty easy election, right? Well, our passage this morning, Jesus is standing before Pilate just a few days after he is welcomed into town, and he is welcomed as the one that people are tripping all over themselves to crown him as king. He's going to be the celebrated one who promises to restore Israel to her place of glory, People had been waiting. They had been longing for this king. 1 Samuel 8 tells the story of when God's first people began to look around. Because this is not the first time Israel has been through this. 
They looked around at all the kingdoms around them and they got to thinking, you know, maybe we would be better off with one of those kings like all of the nations of the world around us. I think that would be better for us than having God as king. Now, for his part, Prophet Samuel, he had some pretty serious doubts about this. So he goes to God. He's actually pretty broken up about it. But God tells him, look, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. Turns out, God loses the election. And it breaks God's heart. But he gives the people what they want. And this kind of begins a rather sordid you know, chapter in the life of Israel. They have many kings, some of them are good, but more often than not, they turn out to be more like Prince John than like King Richard. None of them are able to bring about the kind of inner transformation that God desires for his people to bring about his desire for flourishing in the world. Fast forward to the time of our gospel reading. The people are back in Israel. They have endured one occupying army come in after another and shatter their dreams of becoming this eternal kingdom. And now Rome is the major world player on the scene. And Caesar's kingdom, as you can imagine, casts a long shadow. And so the people are, they're back to this place of of waiting and hoping and praying for a king like the nations have that is gonna come and set things right. Then Jesus shows up and proclaims that in him, the kingdom of God have come near. And the people hear this, and you gotta know that, you know, this was the kind of campaign speech that would set their hearts on fire. And when they hear this, you know, there, there are a lot of others who make promises. But Jesus actually backs it up. He's got words of life, he backs it up with miracles, with authority. And you gotta know that when Jesus says that the kingdom is here, it is loaded with all kinds of meaning and all kinds of images and all kinds of of thoughts about what this would bring for the people of Israel. It spoke of this gap between the, the future and the present. And Jesus was saying, in me, the the kingdom, the thing that you have been longing for is here. But the people, they were pining for the day when a Messiah, when a king would come in power, is gonna drive out Rome and reestablish this new world order with them on top. And so they could go back into fulfilling their vision of being a light to the nations so they could go back to being the hope of the world. And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom, it's, it's set against the imagination of the prophets who would talk about this coming reign of the king. They had these, this deep vision of a place where, where God's reign is brought to life so that all things are made to flourish. I've said it before, but it's this idea of shalom. And I think I've talked about it so much over the last nine months because I'm so desperate for it. I think, I think I'm not alone in that. And so the prophets, they, they're filled with all sorts of metaphors and images of trying to strain to paint a picture of what this new reality is gonna look like. 
Here's one of those from Isaiah. The, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear and their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. An infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The kingdom, this place of peace, it's this place where natural enemies are at rest, where we are who we are meant to be, where all things work together so that all things flourish. And when Jesus arrives on the king, or on the scene, he, he's, he's preaching about this kingdom. He's saying that this kingdom has come. And the reality in which all people and all creation are, are made to flourish, it's breaking into the present here and now. That there is a new creation that is taking place in him and that he is pulling all of their hopes together about what this future is going to look like into the present right where they are. But the funny thing about people is that they forget what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. They're still looking for a kingdom that's like all of the ones around them. And so when they welcomed them in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and they were ready to give him the crown, they were hoping that he was actually going to beat plowshares into swords and pick a fight with Rome. By the end of the week, when Jesus stands before Pilate and says that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms in the world, he is saying that his kingdom won't come by pulling the levers of power. It's not gonna come by the sword, it's not gonna be funded by a super PAC. My kingdom, Jesus says, is not like anything you have ever seen. And I wanna say just really quickly that I think this has some bearing on just how tense things have gotten in our political scene just these days. Part of the reason it's so polarizing is that while the political arena is an important arena to be sure, our culture is pressing us to believe that it is the ultimate arena. Sociologist James Davison Hunter writes this. He says that the state has increasingly become the incarnation of public weal. Its laws, policies, and procedures have become the predominant framework by which we understand collective life its members, its leading organizations, its problems, and its issues. This is the heart of politicization. And it has gone so far as to affect our language, our imaginations, and our expectations. The language of politics and political economy comes to frame progressively more of our understanding of our common life, our public purposes, and ourselves individually and collectively. And it's true, ever since Constantine, the church has had these seasons where it has tried to cozy up and use these levers of power. And when we live in a fractured society, you start to think that, you know, when, when the language of politics is the thing that shapes the public imagination, you start to think that the only way anything's ever going to get done is if you are able to grab for and pull those political levers of power. 
Our elections this year had the highest turnout since 1908, uh, and the results basically showed what we have experienced for at least, you know, four to eight years, that we are divided as a nation. A lot of people are hopeful, a lot of people are excited, but as we saw yesterday in downtown Atlanta, a lot of people are sad, a lot of people are fearful. And don't get me wrong, I mean, I'm grateful for democracy, but we vote as people who do not need to look for shalom to come from Washington. We are citizens of a different king and a different kingdom. And the stump speech that Jesus gives is not about replacing Rome, it is about reaching and reclaiming God's people, something that no earthly king can do. He says, I have come to be an alternative to the kingdoms of this world. Now, all campaigns, they they all have slogans. Um, When I ran for student body government, my senior year of high school, uh, my campaign posters looked something like this up here, or not. Well, anyway, they had my last name, good. And then they had this dictionary style definition down below it. Uh, And then at the bottom, you know, the, the, the slogan was vote for good. I thought that was pretty clever. And unfortunately, there was a kid in my class whose last name was Best. I still beat him though, so it's okay. But all campaigns, they have slogans. Uh, A time for greatness was Kennedy's. Um, I like Ike, Eisenhower's. Jesus isn't running a campaign, but he definitely has a slogan. And he says, every time he begins to preach somewhere, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe. He's saying that the peace and the justice of, of God's kingdom, they're on the way. Now he is not asking to be elected, but his government is coming to power. He's not asking for his followers to take up arms. In fact, he's going to forgive his enemies. And the path that he takes to victory will look to all the world like a bruising defeat. In fact, he is going to have to die in order to win. But make no mistake, when his kingdom arrives in full, there will be no end. The message did not go over incredibly well with the people of the day. It didn't go over too well with the powers of the day either. They were threatened by it. Those who hold power always are threatened by Jesus. The most powerful political figure in Jerusalem was Pilate, and he tries to trip up Jesus by asking him, are you the king of the Jews? Which is another way of trying to get him to say that Caesar is not king. And Jesus says, yes, just not in the way that you mean it. My kingdom is not from this world, but it is no less real. I am here to transform the hearts of my people so that they long for peace, so that they become an alternative to the world, so that they become a group of people who live and act and treat others like they are from a different kingdom altogether. And so the question is, what kingdom are you gonna live in? And I think, you know, the fact that the people who welcomed him as king on Sunday were ready to crucify him on Friday should make us realize that surrendering to this king is not easy. The kingdoms of the world are threatened by anything that they cannot claim. It's dangerous. 
but it is also beautiful. And I want to close this morning by showing a clip that I think captures the sense of that beauty and danger of when the kingdom of heaven comes near the kingdoms of the world. Uh, this, cl- this clip is actually from a, uh, a British supermarket ad. Go with me on it. Um, but it's based on a true story from World War I. By December in 1941, already a million soldiers had died. But we found in uh, journals of soldiers just this moment where the peace of heaven began to invade the world. Jenkins, open. Night. Otto. Please meet you, Otto. Freut mich. Rose, she's called. Um, it's schön. Um, it's schön.
somehow hearing this familiar tune of the newborn king was enough for just for a moment to recognize that the kingship of Jesus offered something more in tune with reality than anything that the kingdoms of the world had to offer. And the love of the king who didn't send his armies to fight on his behalf, but instead laid down his own life, gave a vision of a reality that was more beautiful, more true, more better than any of the promises that the kingdoms could ever offer. So beautiful, in fact, that it gave them the courage for just a moment to step into this new reality. And making that step came the joy and the peace of life in the kingdom. That is shalom. And that's who we are. Presidents and parliamentarians, they come and go. Elections are won and lost. Administrations come to an end, but the government will be on his shoulders. And of his kingdom, there is no end. May his kingdom come. And now as we come to the table that Christ has set, we see a sign of the feast of the kingdom. A place where every nation, every tribe, every culture will come and bring the best of who it is and worship the king together. A place where the city will be as the garden where God is in our midst. And so this broken bread and this poured out cup are a sign for all those who proclaim Christ as Lord that he is their king. As we come to this feast, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And now we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And having given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after he had eaten, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, this is my blood, the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we proclaim, whenever we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again in power. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let us together proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, come eat and drink. Remember and rejoice. And behold that day when the future will be made present, when God is in our midst and we will weep no more. Amen. Amen.